come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. to episode number 62 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr. recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode, this is going to be my new year, new movie number four. And for this one, I was originally, I know I said that I was going to watch a 2021 film of Shadow in the Cloud. I didn't realize that it was one of those ones where it was a $20 rental fee and I already kind of heard some kind of mixed things on it. So I wasn't, I ended up changing my mind and did not end up watching it just because that was a little bit too pricey of a price tag. So what I end up just doing here is that I'm going to give you a Hell House LLC double feature as I watch the second one of the Abaddon Hotel as well as three Lake of Fire. Those will be the two featured reviews on this episode. And then I also have many reviews of What Lies Beneath. I watched Dracula from 1931 as part of my Odyssey Through the Ones. I watched The Forgotten, Creep, and then I have a very small review about Promising Young Woman. So those will be all the mini reviews that I have on this episode. Don't really have any kind of house cleaning or housekeeping type things that I need to do here. So what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is get you over to a musical break before I get into those mini reviews. And I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. I just moved in my new house today. Moving was hard, but I got squared away. Bell started ringing and changed right loud. I knew I'd moved in a haunted house. Still, I made up in my mind to stay. Nothing was gonna drive me away. When I seen something that gave me the creep, had one big eye and a two big feet. Stood right still and I did the free. He did the throw right up to me. Made a noise with his feet that sound like a drum. Say you'll be here when the morning comes. Say yes, I'll be here when the morning comes. I'll be right here and I ain't gonna. Kitchen, my stove was a blazing hot. The coffee was a boiling in the pot. The grease had melted in my hand. I had a hunk of meat in my hand. From outer space, that sat a man on a hot stove with the pots and Say that's hot, I began to shout He drank a hot coffee right from the spout He ate the raw meat right from my hand Drank a hot cream 
better run Don't be here when the morning comes See if I'll be here when the morning comes I'll be right here and I ain't gonna run And for my first mini-review here on this week is going to be What Lies Beneath. This is directed by Robert Zemeckis. This is from a screenplay by Clark Gregg, but then the story was from him as well as Sarah Kernchan. This stars Harrison Ford, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Catherine Town. This is a drama, fantasy, horror, mystery thriller that is from the United States, and it is currently sitting on a... 6.6 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being the wife of a university research assistant believes that her lakeside Vermont home is haunted by a ghost or that she is losing her mind. Now, this is a movie that I'm not entirely sure if I saw it all the way through until sitting down with Jamie and watching it. It was one that my mother and sister really enjoyed, and I knew what the major reveal was along with that, but I finally decided to give it a watch, and this also technically falls into my journey through the aught stuff as well. So just to expand a little bit here on the stories that we have Claire Spencer, who is Pfeiffer. She wakes up her daughter of Caitlin, who is town, and she's getting ready to go off to college. Claire is trying to be strong, but we see that it is tough. Claire is married to Norman, who is Harrison Ford. He isn't actually the father to Caitlin as... Claire was previously married, and her husband had passed away. Now, we have a good family unit here, though. The movie, though, introduces us that their neighbors are having issues. Mary Fuhrer, who is portrayed by Miranda Otto, is fighting loudly outside with her husband of Warren, who is James Remar. This isn't the first time either, but despite their issues, they make up soon after. Things then take a turn, though, when Claire goes over with a, you know, welcome to the neighborhood type stuff. She doesn't see Mary and finds a shoe with a red spot on it. Soon after, she sees Warren at night taking something outside of the house, and it looks like it could be a body. Claire starts to believe that weird things are happening in her house, and that it is the ghost of Mary. And then she keeps seeing these initials of MEF, which would also kind of fit there. Claire, along with her friend, conduct a seance in the bathroom, as this is where she has encountered this spirit mostly. When nothing happens, she has another encounter after Jody, who is her friend, leaves. When Claire goes to her husband, this upsets him, and we she has to start seeing a psychiatrist of Dr. Drayton. Now, the haunting is still going on, though. It is driving Claire insane. She was also in a horrific car accident. She doesn't remember a lot of what happened, but there is something that could lead to what is really going on here. She originally thought it had to do with her neighbor, but it might actually be much closer to home. Now, that's where I'm going to leave my recap here. And this movie does some interesting things to reveal information that is, you know, where I want to start this. I like that we get introduced that Claire might not be reliable. She is trying to be strong with her daughter going away to college. This then leads us to learn more about her past through a photo album. This is where we first see that she was married previously and that she was also in a car accident. We also get more of this through a dinner interaction where Norman brings Claire out with his friend of Dr. Stan Powell, who is portrayed by Ray Baker, and his lady friend is an old friend of Claire's, and it's Elena, portrayed by Wendy Crewson. This movie gave me some vibes of Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window with the investigation into Warren. The movie is strategic with similar shots and plot points that happen. Heck, even the cover story is similar that Mary went away after a fight with him. I love this idea that Claire is convinced that it has to be something that's happened here. Norman wants her to give this up for good reason that it is wild, but the more she looks into us, the closer she gets to the truth. There's also vibes of gothic horror here. We have this ghost that is haunting Claire, but it's much like those stories that it's not necessarily the villain, though. This is really a modern take on one of those type of tales. Dr. Drayton tells Claire that maybe this ghost is trying to tell her something. What I like about this, though, is that it doesn't necessarily think it's real, but it's more of her subconscious trying to relay something to her. It is really creative, in my opinion. Where I think I should shift this over to next would be the acting. Pfeiffer is really our star here and drives this movie. She does well in establishing the normal of her character before we see her descend into what we believe either to be madness or that she is really being haunted. I think she shows some good emotions that are believable. Ford does well in support. I think the change of his character from the beginning to the end really was good also. I also really enjoyed the cameos by Otto, Remar, Amber Valletta, and the rest of the cast that rounded this out for what was needed. And really the last thing to go over would be the effects. We really don't get a lot of them, and unfortunately they tended to be CGI. 
I do come to expect that with the budget they were working with and the team that was behind it. The CGI wasn't great in quite a few parts though. What I will say is that the cinematography was on point as there's some great framing and some of the characters see some things. The depth of field was impressive at times as well. So overall I would just say that this is very well shot in my opinion. So in conclusion, this is an interesting murder mystery that incorporates some good supernatural elements. And I also really like that we have a modern gothic tale here that is set in the present. Pfeiffer also turns in a good performance with the rest of the cast there in support. I really just had some issues with the CGI, but I will say that the cinematography is quite strong. And I actually, you know, think this is a good movie now that I've seen this all the way through. And I would come in with an 8 out of 10 on this movie. And then I have you as I'm going to start doing my Odyssey through the ones and... The first movie that's going to be part of that is going to be Dracula from 1931. This is directed by Todd Browning, and it looks like Carl Freud did some uncredited work. This is from the novel from Bram Stoker, and then this is adapted from the play by Hamilton Dean and John L. Balderston, and then this is also from the play by Garrett Fort, and then we have some uncredited stuff here like Louis Bromfield, Todd Browning, we're both contributing writers along with Frederick Stefani and Louis Stevens. And then for the title, some uncredited stuff by Max Cohen. And then we also have additional dialogue by Dudley Murphy. This stars Bella Lugosi, Helen Chandler, and David Manners. This is a drama fantasy horror film that is from the United States. And it is currently sitting on a 7.5 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being after a naive real estate agent succumbs to the will of Count Dracula, the two head to London where the vampire sleeps in his coffin by day and searches for potential victims by night. Now this is one that I originally sought out after college. It was a blind spot for me and I rented the box set from my local library. I decided that I was going to seek out all of the Universal Classics and this is one of the first. Now this would be my third time actually seeing this, with the second was in the theater on a 35mm print, and now this third was part of, as I said, this segment here on the show. Now we start this off with the real estate agent from the synopsis of Renfield portrayed by Dwight Fry. He's in Romania and he is trying to get to Count Dracula's castle, and we see everybody in this little village is quite scared when he relays this information. Now he does end up going to Dargo Pass, where another carriage is waiting for him. This one is the driver is Bela Lugosi, just he's hiding his face from his passenger as he takes his luggage. Now Renfield gets inside, and while they're on this next part of the journey, he looks out the window and doesn't see the driver anymore, but he does see a bat flying by the horses. When they arrive at the castle, though, the bat is gone as well as the driver. Now inside, we officially meet that Lugosi is Count Dracula. They go about their business upstairs, and we learn that Dracula has purchased Carfax Abbey in England. A ship is prepared and to take them, you know, starting the following night. We then see that Dracula has three wives that are living in the castle with him. He ends up turning Renfield into a servant that is more like a familiar where he ends up eating like bugs and you know drinking the blood of small animals. While they're on this ship, Dracula starts to feed on the crew. And when it arrives in England, the only person left alive that's found is Renfield. And he's thought to be mad. The ship is thought to be cursed though because everybody on board of course is dead. And then Renfield is taken to a sanitarium that is run by Dr. Seward, portrayed by... Herbert Bunston. Now, Dracula is enjoying his time in England. We see him feed on a young girl before going to an opera house, and it is there that he meets his neighbor of Dr. Seward, along with his daughter of Mina, portrayed by Chandler, her fiance of Jonathan Harker, who is David Manners, and then her friend of Lucy Weston, who is Francis Dade. Now, that night, the Count attacks Lucy, and the person in charge of her autopsy is the world-renowned Dr. Van Helsing, portrayed by Edward Von Sloan. Now, he notices marks on her neck and starts to kind of look into what could possibly be going on here. He's willing to, though, bend his scientific belief and think that it could be something supernatural here. And then Mina starts to become the object of Dracula's desires and the men in her life do what they can to protect her. What I can say is that I found this interesting that this is not actually following the novel, but it's more going off of the play that was adapted from the novel. And this is one of the actual, you know, on-film appearances of Dracula, one of the first ones under the correct name, that is. Now, what I found interesting here is that we established the basic lore in the first five minutes of the vampire in this movie. We learn that they're nocturnal, you know, weak to sunlight, everything like that. But what I also really like here is that Van Helsing is a man of science, but he's willing to entertain the idea that there's a vampire here, and he's the one that's a firm believer of it. It's actually the other guys that are around him that don't, and I mean, Jonathan's even, you know, blind to the idea that it could be, 
a vampire because you know he doesn't believe in the creature like this that is you know not based in necessarily reality now something that i find interesting about this adaptation is that they're not using the novels i've said where they actually cut out two of the characters that are completely you know from the movie i don't mind changing that dr seward is mina's father but we get rid of quincy morgan and arthur holmwood and I just think that could be something that is going to hurt the movie here is I feel like there isn't much of an investigation or a mystery. Something I tend to run into with these Universal films is that they just have a basic story and a lack of subplots. A lot of this could have been, you know, just the early cinema. And this version of the story completely cuts out, you know, Van Helsing taking the suitors of Lucy to her coffin to prove that she's a vampire and destroy her. This does hurt the movie for me and how it ends up is a bit of a, too abrupt as well. They never do travel back to Transylvania, which is also a misstep. I shouldn't harp so much on this variation of the story, but there are just other movies out there that do more of the story and a better justice, in my opinion. But something I have to be positive here on is the acting. Lugosi kills it as his iconic character. He is my second favorite Dracula behind Christopher Lee, and I think that he does, just looking at him and the way he speaks, I think he's Dracula. I do enjoy the gentleman take that he does on the role as well. The best performance, though, in this movie is Fry, for me. He was amazing as Renfield, and I was just blown away by his performance. He comes off as crazy, and it is highly believable. But there are also moments where he gains clarity. It just works on what he's doing there. Aside from that, I thought Chandler, Manners, Van Sloan, and Bunsen were all fine, as well as the rest of the cast around this out for what was needed. Now, being that this is from 1931, the effects are done practically, but they don't always look great. I'm not going to harp on this too much, as due to the technology they had to work with. Bats clearly don't fly as they would in real life, but that's, you know, I've seen films that are come out in the 1970s that look about as good as we get here, and I mean, CGI'd ones now that we would get would, you know, make me even more upset. There's also a spider that wasn't great, but I think there's a bit of charm there. I do like how they focus on Lugosi's eyes, highlighting them with a light. It really shows he has the power to entice, and that works for me. The editing is fine. The movie has a low runtime. I actually would have been fine if it would have, you know, been a little bit longer, and I think that would have helped to build a little bit of tension. But I think that part of my problem here is that they just go kind of reveal too much instead of, you know, giving us more of an investigation. So I will say this is a classic. It helped kick off the Universal Monsters movies. And I think it's, you know, interesting that we have, you know, the horror genre at this time was taken from great literature. I do enjoy this film, but I feel that the story could have benefited by adding a little bit more from the book that could have helped, or even adding just a little bit more of kind of story in general. But the acting is really good. The effects aren't great, but I have a soft spot for the era that they came out in. So I don't love this movie. I think it is really good, and I can recognize that. So my rating here for Dracula from 1931 is an 8 out of 10. And then I watched The Forgotten. This is from 2004. This is directed by Joseph Rubin and written by Gerald D. Pengo. This stars Julianne Moore, Dominic West, and Linus Roach. This is a drama mystery sci-fi thriller that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.8 on IMDb and a 2.5 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, after being told that her children never existed, a man and a woman soon discover there is a much bigger enemy at work here. Now, this is a film that I saw back in the theater when I was in high school. I actually went and saw this twice. The second time was with a couple of friends, and we had nothing else to do, and I enjoyed it, you know, a second time and it was pretty much within like a week or so of each other. I hadn't seen it since then though, so I was a little bit nervous for watching this, but it did come up as part of the T-Put Summer Challenge series, which I'm still kind of watching my way through the movies that I either hadn't seen for some time or just had never seen before. So just to kind of delve a little bit more into the story here is that we have Telly, who is portrayed by Julianne Moore, as she is dealing with the grief of losing her son, Sam, who is portrayed by Christopher Kovaleski. As viewers were hearing some voiceover from her as well as Dr. Jack Muntz, who is Gary Sinise. And we see her taking items out of a dresser and there are, you know, a photo album and some videos as well. Now she's trying to do this less and less and working towards progress here. And then she's also married to Jim, portrayed by Anthony Edwards. And he is, he is excited that she's going back to work as it seems like she is getting better and, you know, get, dealing with the loss of their child. Then we get to see that this movie is really going to be dealing with memory here as she's going to her appointment with Dr. Muntz is that she speaks with this friendly man portrayed by Roach who points out that her car is actually across the street. So there's a lapse in memory or at least that's what the movie is portraying and then there's another one while she's at her session is that she thought she had coffee and she can even taste it but he points out that she had declined 
to not have any during this session, and this is really just showing that memory can be unreliable despite how strong our convictions are. Telly has a freakout though the next time she goes to the dresser and all of the pictures in the album are gone. The tapes are all blank and she accuses Jim of removing them. He's confused as he states that they never had a child. She goes off into the night where she runs into Ash, portrayed by West, who is, you know, drunk and he propositions her. He doesn't realize that she knows him and that her, their children were friends. He lost his daughter on the same flight that her son died on. Now she ends up seeking out Jim later on and he doesn't remember her though. This causes her to go to Ash's place where he doesn't necessarily remember her either and then he also doesn't remember having a daughter. So he ends up calling the police when Telly removes all the wallpaper in his office to reveal the drawings that his daughter did. Oddly enough though, when the police arrive, so do agents from the NSA. The detective who ends up taking over this case is Ann Pope, portrayed by Alfie Woodard, and she becomes concerned about the evidence before her. She questions what is going on and seeks out Dr. Muntz, as well as to help Telly. Now, Ash also ends up remembering that he has a daughter and aids Telly to get away from everybody, and they go on the run trying to piece everything together, but the question becomes, did they really have children, or are the memories that they've created so strong that they believe they did, and also, who is this friendly man that we keep seeing? Now, what I really like about this movie is that we're really, as I said, dealing with a psychology that memory isn't very reliable. This is partly why in the courtrooms that it doesn't necessarily hold up, and I learned about this in my psychology class. This movie does well in establishing that it's going to be important with Telly not being able to remember where she parked or had coffee, and then it has given us the idea that she also might not be reliable. I also think it's strategic that in the beginning we do see that Sam exists, but as we go through it, we're not sure if this is a delusion or not. We're on her side, though. While watching this, I did get vibes of a movie, Bunny Lake is Missing, except that there we never actually get to see that little girl, where here we do. They do well in playing it off like this could be a memory that we're experiencing that isn't necessarily real. What is also behind this movie is something I'm not going to spoil here, but I think the ex explanation behind it does work. It is something that seems plausible to me, and there's a heavy creepiness to it, and it's interesting as reasoning for that as well. This is where I'm going to go ahead and leave it, but I'll just say that everything for me does fit together in the end. Now, the strongest part of this movie for me, though, is the acting. More as our lead works, I wouldn't say this is her best performance, but I like what we get here and this feeling of desperation that she has mixed with determination. Despite what she is told, she is clinging to the idea that she is right and that not everyone is, you know, just trying to convince her otherwise is what she believes. I actually believe her even when I'm questioning things. I like West as her counterpart. He brings a bit of sleaze at first, but I like that her beliefs make him remember things as well. Roach is good as this creepy yet friendly guy who keeps popping up. Sinise, Woodard, Edwards, and the rest of the cast are just solid. I think that we have enough cameos here of actors and actresses that you'll recognize as secondary people, which I also think that helps since there's not really a bad performance. Then really the last thing to go over here would be the effects. To be honest, we really don't get a lot of them, and this is in part to the fact that the type of movie we're getting. It doesn't necessarily need to have them either. We do get some CGI here, and I'll say some of it works, but there's some of it that at times just doesn't really hold up, and I did have issues there. And we do get some good CGI here as well, though I will say that, that I don't think it could even be done any better if it was done today. Aside from that, I think the cinematography was solid, and I would just say that this isn't as good as I remember it, but that's not to say it was bad. We get a story here that blew me away the first time that I saw it, but then after you know what's going on here, I think it does have rewatchability to kind of pick out different things. We're exploring memories here and how strong they are, and that's interesting to me. And I also think that the reveal works as well as the acting being strong and the soundtrack fit for what was needed. There's just some issues that I have with some CGI. I would say this is a good movie and would still recommend this one, especially to horror and non-horror fans alike. And I came in with an 8 out of 10 on The Forgotten. And then I also got to watch Creep from 2004. This is written and directed by Christopher Smith. It stars Franca Potetti. Sean Harris and Voss Blackwood. This is a horror mystery thriller film that is from a co-production of the United Kingdom and Germany. It is currently sitting on a 5.6 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being trapped in a London subway station. A woman who's being pursued by a potential attacker heads into the unknown labyrinth of tunnels beneath the city streets. Now this is a movie that I believe my sister turned me on to when I was in college. I got the movie from Netflix back then and ended up thinking that it was pretty interesting. I also picked up a DVD copy and I hadn't seen it since that one time viewing. 
for this second one now as part of the Summer Challenge series over on the podcast Under the Stairs, as I'm still working through that list of movies as I've been saying. Now, this one is that we get to learn with George, who is Blackwood, and Arthur of Ken Campbell, that there are these sewer tunnels that are underneath the city of London, and we end up learning that George has been doing this, you know, just because he's out on parole from prison as he was selling marijuana and it turns out that it's no longer a crime so he kind of got the short end of the stick there but arthur has been doing this for a much longer time now they come to a hole in a wall that leads to a new tunnel that he's never seen before now they go into it and then there's something else that is in there with them and i also should point out that during the title sequence we get to see these medical rooms that are dingy and a woman being pulled back into a room by something as well now, then we get to meet our main character of Kate, who is portrayed by Potetti. She's at a party, and we see that she's supposed to be leaving to go to another bar where supposedly that night George Clooney is supposed to be. But also at this party, she has inappropriate advances that are being made by a co-worker of Guy, portrayed by Jeremy Sheffield, that she rebuffs. Kate ends up trying to find a taxi to get to this other bar. When that doesn't work, she decides to take a subway. Now, while she's down in the station waiting, she ends up falling asleep and misses her train. There's another one that shows up, but somebody else also gets on this one who has intentions of sexually assaulting her since they're alone. But there's something even more darker and scarier that is hiding in the tunnels that she has to try to survive the night. But can she make it till morning when the station opens back up? And what is the thing that is after her as well? Now... I think this is interesting is that after the first time seeing this, I've been to London and have ridden on these type of trains that we're seeing here. It's kind of interesting because there was one time where the people that I was there with that we were a little bit later into the night where the trains had actually stopped running for some of the stations and you could see these locked things. So we had to try to figure out a way to get back to where we were staying and it, we had to go a roundabout way with these trains and everything. So I can kind of understand what was happening there. But, you know, I've never been fully locked in, and obviously I made it out, you know, safe and sound and nothing, you know, all that scary happened. But I just kind of want to say that I do have my own firsthand experiences with these trains. And I think these stations are, you know, a great setting for a horror movie. The cinematography down there really works. I got a little bit of vibes of an American werewolf in London, I will say that. And I also kind of like that we get to see some of these secret places that are down here as well. Now, we have this homeless couple of Mandy, who is portrayed by... Kelly Scott, and then her boyfriend of Jimmy, who is Paul Rattree, they live down here. They opened up a door into a place that is hidden, and it looks like they have, you know, pipes and whatnot in there. You don't realize that this stuff is down there, and I like that we get to explore that as well. And then we also have this whole secret laboratory and operating theater as well. Now, what is odd here is that we have these medical style rooms down here and a gripe that i have is that we never really get to learn what much of why that's there the movie runs 85 minutes so i don't know if they cut some of the backstory or just didn't have the funds to kind of film it but i think even five to ten minutes might have just deepened the story enough for me but i do like that we get to see like fetuses in jars and a picture that helps to explain a little bit but as someone who loves the story of a movie i wanted more there and next I'll go to the effects here. The true villain in this movie is Craig, portrayed by Sean Harris. Now, I'm a fan of this actor. And just looking at him, I didn't even realize that was the guy. The makeup they did on him was that well done. I like how creepy he is and how he looks. And the name that goes along with the title, you know, kind of makes sense there that he's, you know, creeping around in the darkness. The other part is that Guy attempts to do something to Kate here that makes him a creep as well. Aside from the look, I like how we got... Some blood and everything that was down there was good. I like the look of Craig as well because I do believe that some of the stuff there with his attire helps to explain a bit of the backstory. As I said, the blood was good and I think the rest of the effects I think could have went a little bit farther, but I'm fine with what we got. And then the last thing I'll go over here would be the acting. I think that Harris does a great job here as he doesn't really have a whole lot in the way of lines. He does a lot with just mimicking characters and things that he has seen. And he does relay some things that he's heard as well, which makes his performance that much creepier i thought potato was solid as our as our lead here in her role my only issue here is that i like that we're seeing her fight for her survival but she's tough from the beginning so we really don't get that character arc where she's kind of weak and has to grow into this character i know that's a little bit cliched but this is kind of a slasher-esque film so i do feel like we need a little bit different there but they establish you know that she's like i said strong immediately so i don't necessarily think that her changing and it is a bit of an issue for me i do like how she stands up to the males that are coming onto her though blackwood sheffield scott and ratchery were all solid in rounding out everything that was needed here in this movie in my opinion i just think that we have kind of 
an interesting setup for this movie, but we're just missing a little bit of that backstory to really pull everything together for me, though. Thought the acting was good, the soundtrack doesn't necessarily stand out, the effects were solid, and the cinematography, you know, really kind of shows the scope of where this is all taking place here. I found this, though, to be just an above-average movie and came in with a 6.5 out of 10 here. And the last film I'm going to go over here is going to be a little bit shorter because it's not technically a horror movie, but I think it has some interesting elements that I kind of wanted to go over here, and that is Promising Young Woman. This is from 2020. This is written and directed by Emerald Fennell. It stars Carrie Mulligan, Bo Burnham, and Alison Brie. This is a crime drama thriller that is a co-production of the United Kingdom and the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.4 on IMDb and a... 3.9 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis here being a young woman traumatized by a tragic event in her past seeks out vengeance against those who cross her path. Now, what I really just kind of want to say here is this movie was one that Jamie and I saw the trailer for at the Gateway Film Center. It is one that I wanted to see, and I thought it might fall into the horror genre. After my viewing, though, it doesn't. But that doesn't mean it isn't good. It is an interesting film of revenge that involves rape, but not exploitation as you'd get with, like, I Spit on Your Grave or other films of that ilk. It is told in a way that handles it without, you know, diminishing the idea. Our character of Cassie, who is portrayed by Mulligan, is amazing. There were times where I teared up seeing what she is dealing with, even though it doesn't necessarily happen to her. Now, Jamie and I talked about this movie after seeing it as well, and it is a tough subject matter. We both kind of bring our own interesting concepts and ideas that we can bring to the table because of some of our life experiences. But this movie incorporates elements of different types of movies that mesh so well in dealing with this. There's comedy here. Cassie seems to be changing from the vengeful woman who has put her life on hold as things seem to be, you know, getting better for her. And, like, she pretty much just kind of drops out of college after this event and kind of just coasting through life. And then we see that some good things start to happen to her, so she kind of starts to change it before becoming what happens at the end. Now, where it ends up is heartbreaking in the most satisfying way, though. All of the performances that we get here are great with subtle nuances. I love the cinematography, the framing, the color schemes that were used. It was beautiful. Seeing Cassie get her revenge on those that ruined lives or were complacent when things are happening is so satisfying to me. This is a heavy movie, but one that I think needs to be seen. The message that is conveying is amazing. As I've always said, I no longer give out 10 out of 10s without a second viewing. This is going to be sitting on the highest rating that I can give until I come back to seeing it again, and I came in with a 9 out of 10 at this time for Promising Young Woman. So what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. Alex, you lost everything. How the hell do we have a way out? Have you ever been to Rockland County? A little town called Abaddon, just north of the GW, right along the Hudson. Why would I have ever been there? Because there's a hotel there called the Abaddon Hotel, and it's completely vacant. What, do you want to start a bed and breakfast? No, Mac, that's where Hell House is going to get its second life. This hotel has a long history of unexplained events being caught on camera. Why do they guard it so much if they're saying there's nothing wrong with it? I don't believe in ghost stories, but I don't want to take any chances with you guys. We're going to be in and out in an hour, tops. These four individuals who have gone missing were amateur ghost hunters, not trained professional investigators. Miss Fox, you've been missing for five days now. Can you tell us anything you remember of how you wound up walking along on the side of the road tonight? Can you tell us anything about where you've been since last Sunday? whatever you're doing and head for the exit, you do exactly that.
featured review here on this episode is going to be Hell House LLC 2 The Abaddon Hotel. This is from 2018. This is written and directed by Stephen Cognetti. This stars Vesley Fluter, Jillian Gertz, Joy Schatz, Dustin Austin, Brian David Tracy, Kyle Engelman, Amanda K. Morales, Laura Frenzer, Danny Bellini, Tom Sibley, Lauren A. Kennedy, Adam Schneider, Alice Balkley, Bailey Moyer, and Sean Hall. This is a horror mystery film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.5 on IMDb and a 2.4 on Letterboxd. And our synopsis here is eight years since the opening night tragedy of Hell House LLC and still there are many unanswered questions remaining. Thanks to an anonymous tip, investigative journalist Jessica Fox, who is portrayed by Gertz, is convinced that key evidence is hidden inside the abandoned Abaddon Hotel, evidence that will shed light on the hotel's mysteries. Now I'll be honest, I was late to the game with seeing the original, and I believe that this sequel was made by the time that I did end up seeing it. The third film in the series might actually have been coming out as well, but I don't completely remember. This movie popped up when I did my randomizer for a number that correlated to a movie of something that I wanted to see, you know, and so I figured I would do it as a featured review here as my new year, new movie type challenge that I'm doing. And then just to kind of give a little bit more background information on some of the people here is that our writer and director of Cognetti is interesting. He has only written and directed three films, which are the Hell House LLC trilogy. So I do like that they have one vision from the beginning all the way through that third movie. And at the time of recording this, I have seen all three of them. And then our star of Fluter has been in six films. This is the only one in the horror genre and the only one that I've seen. His co-star of Gertz has been in three movies, two of which are this one and Hell House LLC 3 which again, I've seen both, and then they are the only two in the horror genre that she has done as well. And then this is much of the same for Schatz, as she has three feature film credits. This movie and its sequel are the only two in horror, and the only two that I have seen. Now to start this off, we have a film production company that has been receiving footage for over the last two years, and they're filling in to us that that is the case, and that everything has been compiled into this movie we're about to see, and it does not reflect the beliefs of the company itself. I did enjoy this as a, a cover-up and trying to help with the realism. We then get two different stories of people that have gone into the Abaddon Hotel and have never been seen again. We get an eerie one of Jackson Mallet, who is portrayed by Sibley, through his mother telling us things. Her name is Wendy, and she's portrayed by Frenzer. What I really like here is that we see a home movie of Jackson when he was a boy, I believe from like in the like later 90s, like 97, something like that. He's playing a tune on a keyboard, and the name of the hotel pops up. And this is kind of establishing that how strong the entities are within this hotel. And they've been doing this for quite a long, like, a long time. And I mean, I guess on top of that, that you can kind of also kind of put up here is that some of the tragedy of the cult that committed suicide in the first film, or like that story that we hear from that first film, is, you know, had been that long ago. So that is why we're getting it stuff even, you know, as far back as the 90s. Then the movie shifts us over to one of the major parts. There is a television show called Morning Mysteries that is hosted by Susie McCombs, who is portrayed by Morales. She is hosting a panel that is talking about the Abaddon Hotel and what happened with Hell House LLC. On here is Mitchell Cavanaugh, who is portrayed by Fluter. He is the only surviving member of that crew. Now with him on the show as a member of the city council is Arnold Tasselman, who is portrayed by Tracy. He's there to convince the audience and those involved that nothing is going on inside of this hotel and trying to get people to stop there because they actually have cops that they have pretty much 24-hour surveillance to ensure people don't get in, and we get to learn a little bit more about that. Now, again, he's hoping that everybody will just leave the place alone as there are kind of worrying about people being sued and everything like that. There is also a TV psychic of Brock Davies, portrayed by Engelman, who is looking to build on his fame and use the Abaddon Hotel as part of it. 
Now, there's a lot of name-calling and bickering back and forth, and this does help to establish more of the backstory as other major parts, because this is going to be interspliced with things that we'll be getting to here next, but it's not like you get one whole thing all the way through. You get parts of one, cut back over, cut, go back and forth, you know, kind of shifting back and forth like that. And then our other main part, as I was saying, is that we are following this group of investigators that run a blog called The Inside. They do investigative journalism and actually expose some politicians that are now behind bars. I think this is kind of a cool thing to establish here to show that they have done things that have made a difference. So they're not just some like person who created a blog in their basement. I mean, kind of like I do for, you know, my writing and everything like that. But, you know, just something that is, you know, has a little bit of legitimacy to it. Now, this is ran by Jessica, who does this along with Molly Reynolds, portrayed by Shatz, and David Morris, who is portrayed by Austin. They seek out Mitchell's help, where despite what he claims, he ends up going back into the Abaddon Hotel with them. They believe that there are tapes in the basement that will unlock the truth of what is happening there, as well as kind of explain some other things that are left unsolved. They're also joined by Brock and his cameraman for a nightmare that none of them were expecting, except maybe Mitchell. Now to shift over to my analysis, I do like what this movie is doing in theory. The original was supposedly happening in 2010. From what I gather, though, this movie is taking place more in present times. What happened in the Abaddon Hotel has drawn a lot of interest, so we have people who shouldn't be going in there, and there are documentary shows as well, which all makes it feel pretty real. As, I mean, I used to love watching those ones on, like, Discovery and stuff about, like, hauntings and things to that nature. I will say, though, the execution isn't always there for me, unfortunately, with what they're doing here. I will start what I did like. Everything, for the most part, in the Abaddon Hotel works for me. I like bringing back Mitchell, as he was there previously so he can navigate and relays things. It gets explained why he was allowed to leave in this movie here, so I do like that, as that is, like, building more upon mythology. We also get a few things here that correlate back to that original movie as well. This all works for me, and we see a character like Melissa, portrayed by Kennedy, hitchhiking, and there's a bit here explaining how people who were missing were interviewed as well. I just like kind of, again, establishing that mythology and building on it and explaining things that, you know, you might have questions from in the first movie. Now, sticking with the hotel, I really like that we're getting that there's something supernatural going on there as to why people can't leave at times. Using the found footage angle also makes it creepier, as it feels something like you'd get with Grave Encounters. I'll be honest, I watched this alone at night and in the dark. When it ended, there were a few things that stuck with me that made me uncomfortable, you know, navigating myself to my bedroom, which a little bit embarrassed to say, but I am going to give credit here to the effects if they can do that for me. They use contacts to make people's eyes look creepy, and then assuming that things are fake moving works for me as well. I'm also glad that they toned down things with the camera messing up digitally. I understand why it is used in movies, especially when you're going supernatural, but it is overdone and annoys me now because I've seen it done so much. There's also a bit of CGI here that doesn't necessarily bother me, and it does kind of work, so I will be forgiving there, and I'm not going to hold that against anything there. Really, the only thing that did annoy me here was a television show using a green screen, which isn't that big of an issue, but it did kind of look a bit odd at times. Now, to get into what doesn't work for me is the television show that we see. I understand why it's there, as it's using to fill in backstory. What does work is syncing it up with things where we get information there, shift back to the hotel, and see how it correlates. What the real issue there was that the acting in these like television show scenes. I wasn't a big fan of Morales. The interactions on the show between Fluter, Tracy, and Engelman are all just kind of awkward, but not in a way that feels natural for three people who don't like each other and trying to be civil on television. It doesn't come off feeling real there, and it felt kind of staged. Aside from that, everyone in the hotel, I thought, showed good fear, so I will definitely give credit to all of that. And then I just have a little bit of trivia here that I wanted to share. And the filming locations is a real Halloween haunted house open to customers in the fall. Esta puerta porta is Latin for the door is open. This is the middle movie of a conceived trilogy, of course. Producer Joe Badanelli is uncredited in the movie, but plays Brock's cameraman throughout the film. Similar to the first one, someone has needed to play the main clown. Producer Joe Badinelli donned the clown mask and costume throughout this one. And then there's also something here that when some people find some tapes in the basement, they barricade themselves in a room. The cameraman is pretending to write the videotapes that he found earlier in the basement refrigerator, trying to put down on kind of what is being contained on each one of them. That's all I really wanted to share for some trivia. So in conclusion, I think that this movie does some really good things for me. Others, not so much so in my opinion. I really like the everything that we're getting inside the Abaddon Hotel. There was this creepy 
kind of vibe and it made me uncomfortable. The acting got on my nerves for the fake documentary show they're doing. But everything when it comes to the fear was good. This movie made me uncomfortable, which, you know, if you can do that for me, it's good in my book. I do think that the editing and pacing was well done. There is a bit of soundtrack here, but the footage is edited, so I'm fine with that. I think the movie does well in building on the mythology, which works for me as well. If you like found footage, I think this is a solid enough sequel, and I come in with this as an above-average movie overall. So my rating here on Hell House LLC 2, the Abaddon Hotel, is a 7 out of 10. I'm not going to do any spoiler section or anything like that, but as I've already said in my opening, I did have a little bit of change with not being able to find a 2021 film by the time I was recording everything. So I'm going to go on to the trailer of my second featured review on this episode. Can I ask you about the hotel reopening in a few weeks? How do you feel about that? I told Russell it's a mistake. It doesn't bother you that people died here? Well, I mean, putting on a show like you guys are? My name is Vanessa Shepard. I was the host of Morning Mysteries when Russell took over the Abaddon Hotel in 2018. I've been granted full, behind-the-scenes access to the set of Insomnia in its very new location, the Avdon Hotel. Hi, I'm Vanessa Shepard. It's nice Pleasure. to meet you, Russell. Pleasure Thank you for having us here. As you guys can see, we've handed a few of you your own mini camcorders. We want to encourage you to film anything that you want. The most shocking thing was that Russell was very open to allowing Vanessa and Louie to film everything. What is this? Actually, looking back, maybe that was a red flag. Well, after Hell House, I thought that was it. End of story. You know, they tear it down. I know Jane, and she does not break easy. Everybody's seen something, <gasps> but nobody wants to tell Russell. Where did she go? Just talk to your own people, Russell. They don't feel safe there. You're not here to advise me on my business. You're here to document the opening. All right. Russell knew what was coming opening night. Listen to me. Something is wrong here. Father, you said that Andrew Tully was searching for this fabled gateway to hell. What if he found it? God is not here. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Russell. gonna be bigger than Hell House. More souls for our lake of fire. And for my second featured review on this episode, as I said, is going to be Hell House LLC 3, Lake of Fire. This one's also written and directed by Stephen Cognetti. This one, though, stars Gabriel Chaitri, Elizabeth Vermilia, and Sam Kazi, along with Theodore Balakaus, Brian David Tracy, Brigitte Abrams, Leo DeFriend, Jordan Kaplan, Danny Benelli, Ryan Jennifer Jones, Gore Abrams, Jared Hacker, Joe Bandinelli, Scott Ritchie, and Olivia Roldan. This is a horror mystery that is from the United States, and it is currently sitting on a 5.6 on IMDb and a 2.4 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being the Abaddon Hotel will once again be open to the public. Russell Wynn has taken his audience interactive show Insomnia into the abandoned hotel that is rumored to be haunted. Now, to finish off this trilogy, I watched this one back-to-back -back with the second movie, as I said. I thought this one was a step down, but was still worth a viewing. And, I mean, that's what I heard a lot of people also saying, so I was wondering if we were going to get more of the same or if this was going to do something a bit different. And then before I jump into my actual recap of the movie and then my analysis, I have some featured notes. Now, I've already talked about the writer and director, as so that's going to be a little bit shorter there. But then our star here of Chai Tri has only been in this feature film, and then he was also in a short from last year called Cooties. And then we have Vermilia, who has only been in this movie so far, and the same for Kazi. And I'm not entirely surprised though, as the found footage genre tends to work with these more unknown actors who play roles that are much more natural. So we have less 
preconceived notions since it's somebody we don't recognize. And I do think that that does sometimes help with, you know, as I said, make things a little bit more natural as it's not people that we've, you know, recognized. So we kind of know a little bit more about them, which is what I'm trying to kind of say there. But then to get into this movie, we're nine years after the events of the first one and the Abaddon Hotel is set to be destroyed. It is too much of a liability and the town just wants to move on. That is until a media mogul of Russell, who is portrayed by Chai Tri, steps in and purchases the hotel. There's a bit of talk that he's going to follow the same steps as the other group, that is Hell House LLC did, and reopen. But this time, instead of doing like a haunted house thing, he wants to use his theater trope of insomnia inside of the building. Where, to kind of delve into what the synopsis was getting at here, is that they're going to be put on the play of Faust, but it's going to be kind of an interactive show where the audience is standing right around these people as they're acting, and they go to different rooms to kind of play out different parts of the play. And it's also kind of interesting here is that we have a tale of good against the devil, and that'll play back into everything here. And that is also something we've already kind of seen a little bit of in the previous movie as well. Now, taking over for the show that we saw in the previous movie as well of Morning Mysteries is Vanessa Shepard, who's portrayed by Vermilia. From the sounds, the previous host went missing, along with the rest of the cast, so I'm assuming that they all kind of fell victim to the Abaddon Hotel, and Vanessa really doesn't want to do this piece on the hotel. It is convinced, though, through her producers that they need to go to the hotel and actually do all of this because it is such an important story. But there is a, you know, opening bit that she does, and she meets with Jeff Stone, who is the CFO of Wynn's company, and Jeff is portrayed by Kazi. Now, I didn't realize this until much later on, though, that he has this important position, but I really kind of figured out early on that he's somebody who kind of handles most of the day-to-day -day operations for Russell, kind of the more mundane things that he doesn't really necessarily need to handle. But the two of them go inside, and they get the ground rules that are being laid out here for what's going on in this building and kind of kind of a sly way for them to tell you know how things are going to go and then it sets the stage for what's going to happen later. Vanessa though is given full access to film everything and this makes sense partially to what made Russell the success that he is is some of the concept he's come up for his shows. He's really good with this kind of reality television type stuff and he wants all this so they can get an inside look into everything that he's doing so there's you know part of this you know being a found footage film where we are you know, explaining away why people would be constantly filming as they are, but it also kind of makes sense for how he has made all of his money. And then we get to meet some of the actors here that are going to be in the play of Faust. We have Gregory Sandvik, who's portrayed by DeFriend. He's the lead in the play, and the other actors aren't really the nicest to him and kind of pick on him a lot. There's also Max, who is portrayed by Kaplan, who is playing the devil. And the other one here that's important is Jane Maloney, who is a Abrams. They are all given cameras to document things around them, and this leads to some interesting footage, as I was saying, as they go about, you know, trying to prank each other, and they catch things in the background, and, you know, spooky things actually happen to them as well. Things seem to be going just fine in the hotel, until the longer they stay there, the weirder it becomes. There are rules, as I said, set up that no one is supposed to walk around inside of it after they wrap for the day, and then if they must, they need to do it in a buddy system. So we see at one point where Jane goes into the basement because she is dared by some of the other guys and she ends up getting spooked by the clowns that are left down there from the original Hell House LLC group. And I'm not going to lie though, there's even a creepier part in the bar before she actually goes down there. But everything that happens here kind of shakes her. And then there's also some stuff that happens with the makeup person of Isabel is that she gets kind of spooked and ends up leaving the production completely. So I will say that they do use some of this stuff very strategically here. And as also saying that there are some other things that are caught on video throughout. As the opening of the show approaches, Vanessa is looking into everything that we have here. The more that she looks into it and discovers, she thinks that it might be a bad idea for the show to go on, but Russell really doesn't want to hear it. But she does try to convince him regardless, as well as Jeff, but it's really to no avail. She even seeks out a local priest of Father Paulus, who is portrayed by Dan Dobransky. All the while, we keep seeing things that aren't always seen by the characters, which, if you know me, this kind of freaks me out to have happen. Now, if you've seen the previous film, you know what the plan of Andrew Tully, who is portrayed by Tracy, then it becomes a lot more clear. But does Russell know, or is his plan just another victim of the Abaddon Hotel? So that's where I'm going to leave my recap of this movie, and that's where I want to start what I find interesting here is that we do have the same writer and director for all three of these movies. I did see trivia that this was originally conceived as a trilogy. Now, I do have a little bit hard time believing that, only because 
there is a little bit of a gap between the first and the third one, but that could also be just needing to have the money, and it could have been why it was delayed. But I do think that this works here, that the first movie was really good and helped to make quite a bit of money, which then also helps, you know, get the second one and the third one made. And I think these two, like the second and third, were filmed pretty much back-to-back, -back, as we do have some crossover with actors and actresses. So I'm thinking that they probably just filmed a bunch of stuff and then, you know, filled in what they needed to from there. But, I mean, much like you'd get kind of like the Child's Play franchise, is I like that the same force is behind everything, so there's not as many, like, continuity errors or anything like that. And this one I don't really think has any that I kind of picked up on. But, I mean, the story is also kind of simple, so it does help there. But they do well in building on the mythology, I will say that. What I also like here is that it sounds like, for the most part, the idea of where to start and end, as I said, we're planned from the beginning and not just tacking on movies like you get in some franchise do it, you know, just to kind of do it. Going along with its idea, Russell isn't shown from what I remember in the previous movies, but his name was brought up in the beginning of the second one. I do know that. He is the head of the Wynn group, of course, and that has been getting footage for the last few years, and I'm assuming that is where they, you know, put out the text in the second movie, and then how we got to see that movie is they, you know, release that footage to the public. Now, this is interesting to me, is that it makes Russell an expert on this place, and we get to see a bit more of this as it goes on. And much like I was saying for the previous movie, they're continuing to build on the mythology. And I don't think that this one does as well in that department, though. This one does wrap up the story. I'm just not the biggest fan of where it goes in the end, if I'm going to be honest. But I, like I said, this one doesn't build as much mythology. But I do like that it has a, an ending that does feel at least planned. Something that does work for this one, though, is it's mostly set in the Abaddon Hotel. Unlike the previous one, where they're kind of split between two different places. Now, as I said, that was part of my problem with that previous movie, as this was the strongest part here, and in that other one. We get a bit of scares like we do in the other two movies, but I'll be honest, this one isn't nearly as effective with it. What I think hurts this movie is that it tries so hard to make sure that you know certain things that you're seeing either correlate back to the other two movies, or they want to edit in footage to show something that happened in that specific area from another movie. I think this does bog the movie down a bit, as it isn't as original to me. And I almost kind of feel like it's partially a clip show. I mean, we're not getting as bad as like a full moon movie where, you know, you only record five, six minutes of new footage and then just have a bunch of clips. But I would say that there's a good like 15, maybe even 20% of this movie does feel like clips as well. I don't want you to think that this one doesn't have a story though, as that isn't what I'm getting at. It just tries too hard to make sure that you're up to speed. And this could be also an issue with me having watched, you know, the second and third one back to back. As, you know, there is kind of a year gap in between them. And, I mean, it's almost like a Friday the 13th type thing where they're assuming that you know, that you don't know this information, so you're coming in blind, so they just want to make sure you're up to speed. So, like I said, it would be interesting to kind of watch this with a gap. Now, since I really went over the editing, I will go over the effects. Once again, this one does well with its practical ones. I like the subtle things they do to get with props that is supposed to, you know, make it look like they're alive and moving around, especially statues and the clowns. They do a bit with making ghosts look creepy with contacts. The blood that we get looks good and most of that works. What doesn't is the digital messing up of the camera to show previous footage or that an entity is near. I understand why they do it, but they do it much more in this one than the previous one. And I'm just not a fan of it in general. There's also some bad CGI at the end of this movie that really took me out of what they were trying to do. And I kind of just tuned out as it ended. But to end this section on a positive, I think the found footage adds an element here as the other previous two it does as well. But it doesn't work as well here for this movie as the previous two, in my opinion. I'm not questioning why they're filming everything, because they do well at explaining that. I just, like I said, I think it goes back to the clip thing, is that they worry too much about making sure you're up to speed, I guess, is probably what I'm also trying to say here again as well. And the last thing I want to go over would be the acting. I think that everyone we get here is believable for the movie like this. Something I normally say for found footage is that if they can act natural, then it works. Chai Chai seems like this rich guy who's used to getting his way, but he's not really a jerk about it. Like, I don't think he's one of those type of people. I like Vermilia taking over as the host, as I think she's stronger in her performance than the previous actress. I did like her, and I'm actually genuinely interested in, you know, seeing her as she investigates things. Kazi is good as well. I think that the rest of the actors in the play are good, and bringing back a bunch of characters from the first and second movie also works everything well to wrap up this trilogy on top of all of that. So that's all I really wanted to share there. There was like a bit of trivia, but it really wasn't that important. It was just about a grammatical error in one of the title cards that we get to see. 
So in conclusion, this movie is unfortunately the weakest of the three. I still think that it has a better setup and for what they're going for than the previous one. But I think that this one is just a bit too concerned with making sure that you understand everything that they're wrapping up. I still like some of the story elements that they have going here. The climax works and the acting is solid in bringing these characters to life. The practical effects are also good while the CGI really just hurt this movie for me. I also think that the soundtrack and design there work well with building tension when needed. And I also really like that they bring back this little piano song that they keep using and they really made prevalent in the second one that has an eerie feel that it brings with it overall i'd say this movie is above average it does enough to keep me engaged but just falls short of what they're really going for story-wise so my rating here on hell house llc 3 lake of fire is a 6 out of 10 again i'm not going to do any sort of spoilers in this movie i don't really think that it necessarily needs it and it would just be me kind of giving more of the story elements that i think this is a solid little franchise if you like found footage but what I am going to do is get you over to one last musical break before I close out the show.
thank you for listening to episode number 62 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. And then just to close everything out here, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. Anything that you want to be read in the, you know, on the show, just let me know in that email. And if you don't want it read, that is also just fine. Just let me know that as well. But if you'd like to send me any sort of feedback or anything you'd like to have me cover on the show or anything like that or just kind of want to chat, I would definitely recommend, you know, shooting me over an email there. If you'd like to read any of the reviews on this episode or any of the past ones, that's Reviews of the Dead and that's HorrorReview.Webnode.com. If you'd like to follow me on Facebook or become friends over there, it's David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. On Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. And then if you'd like to follow my Instagram, it's David OSU87. And then if you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that's all just one word there of Journey with a Cinephile. And I will have all of the links in the show notes for all of that. And then the last thing I would ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you could go ahead and make sure that you are subscribed so you never miss a new episode when they drop. And then if you could also go ahead and rate and review me on there just so that way I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, as well as to get myself out there to more listeners on top of that. So for the next episode, it is going to be New Year, new movie number five. And the older movie from my list of films that I'm going to end up watching when I put everything into a randomizer is Cruising. I know this isn't technically a horror movie from everything that I've seen, but I know there's some definitely horrific elements. So I'm going to try to get a copy of that and watch that for the next episode. And then I know there's a few movies that are hitting Shudder. I'm trying to make sure that they're a 2021 release so I can, you know, kind of jump in and get on top of that. So I'm going to hopefully that these ones haven't you know got any sort of release in 2020 and you know everything like that so i will kind of look through a few of those and i think there's some other ones hitting vod as well that i might kind of incorporate in as long as they're not too pricey or anything like that so that's really all i think i needed for you know housekeeping here and everything like that before i ended the show so what i will say is that whatever you do today i hope you're safe in doing it and have a great time this is your tour guide of david garrett jr signing off it had been a wonderful evening and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending. <laughs>